Welcome to Voices from the Vernacular Music Center. I'm Chris Smith. And I'm Roger Landis. This is a podcast from the Vernacular Music Center at Texas Tech University. The Vernacular Music Center is a center for teaching, research, and advocacy in the world's vernacular musics and dance. That is, musics and dance which are learned, taught, and passed on by ear and in the memory. In this first series, produced with funding from the TTU Office of the Vice President for Research and Innovation, we'll talk about how the VMC engages with music and dance from around the world, and about the connections and the history and the community meaning of these art forms. We hear from players, scholars, dancers, builders, and listeners about times and places and people, and together we discover and celebrate the webs of human meaning which connect all of them. Thanks for joining us. In previous episodes, we've centered on instruments, genres, and ideas, and this week we're returning to our discussion about places, the places where we have lived, the music we found there, and the music that found us in such places. In our highly mobile world, lots of folks relocate, and finding music and local arts is one way we can center ourselves in the new place and start to feel at home. Chris will start us off. So that's the wonderful Southern Indiana fiddle player and multi-instrumentalist Lotus Dickey, who was born in Indiana in 1911 and lived most of his life there, though he worked elsewhere. And he was an absolute touchstone for traditional music players of younger generations. I never met Lotus, but an awful lot of people who I got to know in Southern Indiana spoke of him with reverence, so much, with so much reverence, such great reverence that they put together a songbook of tunes and songs sourced from him. It was assembled by friends of ours and published by the university press there. And they actually named a festival after him, uh, the Lotus World Music Festival. Wow. The style, you know, it's not, it's a different style than the Missouri fiddle style we had a few weeks ago in our last um, podcast about places. Um, It's a different style, but it's kind of in the same part of the fiddle universe. It's not a Southeastern style. It's not Appalachian. It's an old time style from the Midwest. It's really interesting to hear it. Yeah. And though I'm not a fiddle player, um, I think that there are certain reasons that might connect that, whether it has to do with terrain or patterns of migration or who settled where and what tunes they brought with them. You and I, Roger, we both have really good friends who are tremendous authorities on the sourcing of fiddle tunes. In fact, um, our mutual friend, Paul Wells, who's now retired from East Tennessee State University, has written whole books and articles and liner notes about tracking where fiddle tunes went, came from and went to, like tracking, you can almost track the migration of the tunes with the people who went with them. But another thing that I think maybe connects Lotus with some of the musicians that we were hearing from your part of the world in Missouri is that Lotus is one of those people who who came from a specific place but he also came from a really specific time. And uh, as I say, I never met him, 
Um, he worked a, a, a physical plant job at Indiana University, where I went to school. He grew up in Orange County, Indiana, which is south of Monroe County, where the university is. And that part of Indiana is really interesting because um, although it's within the state, it's north of, north of the Ohio River, you know, it's across the river from Louisville, Kentucky, the terrain is really different. And the fact that the state lines separate it from Western Kentucky is more about state lines because there's a part of that state where when you're driving south on Route 67, south from Indianapolis, you absolutely go from the flat, billiard table flat, corn growing Midwest, and you go up a steep slope on that southern route about halfway to Bloomington, and you find yourself in hill country. Well, I know that you mentioned immigration patterns. There definitely is, right before the Civil War, maybe 20 or 30 years before the Civil War, there was a migration um, west of Ohio and people coming out of Virginia. My family ultimately came out of Virginia and settled in um, in Indiana and then in Illinois and then in Missouri. Um, they, they, they were given land in Indiana in return for their militia service in Virginia in the War of 1812. And I know that, that there's a pattern there where people are moving west, but they weren't going down the Ohio and then up the Mississippi and then up the Missouri. They were, they were going uh, overland, a lot of them. Um, and they were farmers. They were pulling wagons. They had track animals. Um, and so I, I could see a, a connection there musically, also culturally, where those people passed through and, and settled for some time. Yeah, for sure. And and Lotus was this interesting man. And he it's a fascinating story. And I used to hear the stories about Lotus. I moved to Bloomington in 1987, and I didn't get to meet him before he died in 89, which is a, a matter of lasting regret for me. He grew up, as I say, in, in a rural setting. He was one of he was the youngest of five children. So if he was born in 1911, that means that his parents' generation are certainly the generation of the 1880s. You know, they're definitely, you know, 19th century people. And he grew up uh, in in a kind of cabin setting, but they read Shakespeare and they sang songs and they wrote poetry. It's a kind of this sort of Lincolnian, you know, mm-hmm. frontier, very very Anglo Celtic, but really very culturally engaged kind of life. And so he's he grew up singing. He played pump organ, I'm sure, to accompany him singing. He played the fiddle and the guitar. He also wrote hundreds of songs and. They're in that that uh, he also wrote hundreds of songs, and they're in that uh, songbook that was collected and published by the Indiana University Press. And people who knew him, people that I knew who I met when I moved to Indiana and started playing, they spoke of him with reverence and as someone who was who had changed lives. I wonder, did he come from a musical family? Was he aware of coming from? a lineage or a specific musical identity? I don't know the answer because as I say, I never met him. There are people we know and probably people we'll hear in future episodes of the podcast who could tell us about Lotus. Uh, our mutual friend, Gray Larson, was was a great friend of Lotus's and did a lot of the transcribing for the Lotus Dickey songbook, the music transcribing. Um, my sense is that it was definitely a lineage of people who read and played they were very rural people. And as I said, Lotus was basically a physical plant worker his whole life in Indiana. You know, he he drove, he would drive in and 
work on the campus and then head home. And and uh, it's a fascinating story about how the young folk revivalists, really, the people who were college students in the 1970s, just before, a little before my wife and I got there, they were people who were very interested in folk music. They were mostly not inheritors. And they're fascinating stories about how these young people, people who were there in the mid-70s, began to hear about this man, Lotus Dickey, and, and meet him and realize what an incredible uh, wealth of talent he had and also of repertoire and just of, of a whole way of living. Yeah. He's a very important person. Um, as I say, I, I deeply regret not having met him, but he is certainly very well remembered in Bloomington through his publication, through all the people who inherited music from him, for whom he was a tradition bearer. And I think uh, that's a term we, we we use sometimes in the podcast and we use in our teaching. But you know, to be a tradition bearer in the context in which I'm using it means to be someone who got your music from people. It's not the only way to get music. It's not the only way to learn music. You and I both know you can learn a lot of music from recordings, right? Or, mm -hmm. But to be a tradition bearer is someone who got it in unbroken lineage. And so he was a touchstone for people musically, but also artistically, and I would say even philosophically, you know, just a remarkable man. So that was uh, Lotus Dickey of uh, Orange County, Indiana. So you mentioned relocating to Indiana. Was it for graduate school in 1987? Yeah, it was. I, um, that's a, you know, we can, I can go on at great length about that at another time, but um, yeah, it, Southern Indiana is an interesting place, and Bloomington, Indiana University, Bloomington is an interesting place. It's a, it's a one of the great state schools, sort of freshwater state schools, um, sort of visionary people who founded it and decided that the state, like a lot of states, decide to be a state. We need a, we need county seats, and we need uh, a national identity and a state flag and a state bird, and we need a great state university. And it was it was always that when when my wife and I moved there. It was a fairly small town, and the campus is on one side of town, and on the other side of town is, uh, they just called it the West Side. It's where a lot of the long-term sort of permanent residents lived. But it's it's in hill country. You drive south from Indiana, from excuse me, from Indianapolis, and you go up those hills, and the topography changes, and the geology changes, and you're into granite and slate, a lot of slate, a lot of limestone. In fact, Indiana University, the campus itself is largely built of native quarried limestone. The courthouse, the Monroe County Courthouse in Town Square in Bloomington is built of Monroe County, maybe, uh, I think it's Monroe County limestone. And that's the courthouse around which um, much of the film uh, Breaking Away takes place because mm. that was shot in Indiana, in, in Bloomington in the late 70s. So it's it's absolutely classic. It, it looks, like, uh, looks like Jimmy Stewart could have gone to college there. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of people who had moved to Indiana in the mid-70s, early to mid-70s, young people who'd come from all over to go to college because it's a big state university, as one of the one of the world's great music conservatories. They weren't mostly people who'd come to, to go to school at the conservatory. They'd come for other courses as a folklore institute. But they developed this thing before, before Angie and I got there. They developed this community of people from the, I'd say, late 1960s onward of young people, college students who were coming from elsewhere who were very, very interested in folk musics. They were interested in Lotus Dickey's music, or they were a lot of them were really interested in sort of American folk revival. 
Bill Monroe had uh, his summer Bean Blossom music camp and festival just east of of uh, Bloomington. And so they became aware of bluegrass and they became, these young people became aware of bluegrass and old time Appalachian music. And when I met up with them, uh, the, the, my point of contact for that was I met people who were into playing Irish traditional music. I had played at it, but I met people who played that music at a really high level in this small college town, mostly American born. Most of they came from someplace else, but they met up and, um, uh, musicians like Tom Sparks and David Malk and Malcolm Doglish and Gray Larson, and just this absolutely remarkable community of world-class Frank Hall, Bridget Edwards, the dancer, world-class Irish musicians and dancers in this small town. And out of that, out of that scene, which is still a very active scene, came three people who were really important to me. Um, all of them top quality Irish trad players, all of them people who got their trad Irish trad music directly from living players, you know, from tradition bears. One of them, uh, our mutual friend, Gray Larson, the flute player who we've spoken about before, and we'll, I'm sure we'll meet up with him again, but especially these next two players who I met in Irish music sessions. Um, I was in graduate school and graduate school was rapidly making me insane. And it was the local Irish musicians and subsequently Zookfest that reminded me, oh yeah, you can play music and be in a room full of people, which is in turn a room that is full of joy. And I definitely got that from these two players, my good friends and admired musical mentors, the uh, Twin Cities based fiddle player, Jamie Gans, and the tenor banjo player, Sam Bartlett. Okay, so that was Sam Bartlett on the tenor banjo and Jamie Gans on the fiddle uh, playing uh, what they call the Huey Travers set, Irish tunes. Yeah, it's great. It's a great set. And it's total kitchen music. You'll see folks when they visit the YouTube video, they'll see that's Sam and Jamie in a more recent recording sitting in Sam's kitchen on the west side. And a lot of the a lot of folk musicians lived on the west side of town because the rents were a little cheaper, and it was a 1920s kind of neighborhoods with you know small one story bungalows with big front porches and really good uh, farmers market. Everybody had a garden. It was it was I won't say it was idyllic, but it was and remains a really functioning artistic community. A lot of these people, like Gray Larson, said to me once. He said, you know, you don't try to make a living playing in Bloomington because Bloomington had so many musicians who were so good. Everybody was accustomed to going out and hearing music for free. And so Grace said, you know, you don't make your music, you don't make a living playing music in town. You can make your money on the road, which a lot of these folks did. They would go out and play with dance bands or play Irish music or whatever, teach on the road and then come back in town. But then they would still get together in each other's kitchens and play music. And on a really good night, um, they'd be there and I'd be there and my wife Angela would be there. And we'd be sitting on the staircase of one of these divided bungalows with a stair central staircase. You go in up onto the front porch and directly inside the front door, there's a staircase that leads up to the second floor if there is one. 
and uh, the musicians would be sitting on the staircase. And in each room on either side of the staircase, there'd be 16 people dancing Irish sets. <laughs> and and that was really kind of idyllic. And it was an incredibly timely, it was a timely thing for me to be, these folks, some of them worked for the university, a lot of them worked on the road or they were teachers or that kind of thing. Like a lot of college towns, there was a kind of divide between, it's a terrible overused phrase, but there was a, a divide between campus and community. It wasn't contentious. It's just the two circles of people didn't really meet very much. And going to a music conservatory, you spend 16 hours a day working either on academics or on practicing, or you know, it's, it's very enveloping. Sort of belatedly discover these folks and the kitchen dances they played and the little Irish sessions that they played in and the uh, Thursday night contra dance. They had a Thursday night contra dance that's run outdoors, outdoors or in the local um, free school since about 1975. There's been a Thursday night contra dance. Wow! And it's the contra dance is older than a lot of the people who play in it. So that was that was pretty great to discover those folks. The other side of that experience was was attending graduate school at you know one of the world's great conservatories, certainly one of the world's largest conservatories. When my wife and I were there, there were 1,600 music majors at the IU Jacobs School of Music. So it was easy to kind of get lost. But because of the sheer size, it's not the best of the music programs, but it's the biggest. There's a lot of people who come to a school like that. And you know, if you're not getting completely chewed up by the bureaucracy of it all and the, the hard work of it all, you can meet a lot of people from a lot of places. I know you're from the Boston area. Um, you you were in, and your wife, Angela, both um, are from Massachusetts. Boston is world-renowned as a great music town. How would, how would you compare the Indiana scene with the Boston scene? The crazy thing, I've alluded to this before, I'll, I'll just say briefly, I have a for most of my life, I've had a wonderful ability to be just down the block from an amazing music scene and not know it. So growing up in Boston, I, I didn't know there was an Irish music scene. I figured it out in Chicago and I found the blues on the South Side. The thing about Bloomington, like other towns, like Ann Arbor or, you know, I don't know, Hot Springs, Arkansas, or the Twin Cities or Cambridge, Mass, or a lot of places where there are these kinds of music scenes is that there's often an influx of people, multi-generational people. A lot of them are folks who've come for college or they work for a college. They're, a lot of them are avocational players. But the real magic happens when you have those folks, but you also have people who've come, who are tradition bearers, who've come and they now live in that town. And you begin to recover that sort of multi-generational thing. That was the multi-generational thing, I think, that Lotus Dickey gave to the young players. Lotus was like, as as local a person in the best way as you could be. And these young people came from all over, but they realized that he was, to use a great phrase that Mike Seeger used, he was the true vine. And Sam and Jamie and Tom Sparks and Gray Larson and Bridget Edwards and Frank Hall, they had come from elsewhere. But a lot of them had studied with these master players. So you had this town that was absolutely, it was a town of 60,000 when we moved there. Not very big town, college town size. Looked like the scenes in Breaking Away, right? But the the sheer density of creative people, especially not only of performing artists, but especially of performing artists and especially musicians, was simultaneously really difficult because <laughs> there was no work. 
but at the same time, incredibly inspiring because there were all these great musicians. Since we're talking about place, places, um, do you think that what you've just described um, as a meeting place of multi-generational people, people from all over the United States, from all over the world, uh, do you think that the particular social technology of the university um, creates that in and of itself? Or do you think there are unique sets of circumstances and people um, that kind of grow uh, a certain kind of of musical ecosystem or cultural ecosystem around a university? Yeah, boy, that's uh, boy, that's a to- that's a topic for several doctoral dissertations for sure, right? Because it's so complicated. And so, because it's so complicated, I'll just kind of say in passing, because I haven't really reflected on it, but I'll say in passing, there are two things that I observe. Maybe this will resonate for you, Raj, or maybe it will resonate for for listeners. A university has an infrastructure, and that infrastructure can be really powerful, not least an infrastructure of thousands of people who've come to the university to learn new things, whether it's within music or outside of music. So there's resources, you know. There's human resources and there's human energy. Unfortunately, in too many situations, universities deal with a way of teaching and learning that's really inimical to a lot of the ways that the traditions are learned and taught and passed on. So at the same time that you have the incredible resources of a university, the the human resources, the literal human resources of a university, and the sense of excitement that comes from being in a teaching and learning situation, which is very real, you well know. You're sometimes also as a student, as a teacher, as an advocate, as a as a as an initiator, you're sometimes also really fighting a bureaucracy. And not even a bureaucracy, but just a teaching and learning philosophy that's really opposed to that kind of apprenticeship. And so it's a it's it's a battle. And it took me a couple of years to find all the folks across town who were engaged in this entirely different, very organic, very place and space and people-rooted music community. But the other side of it is that you also meet amazing people who've come from a long way away. And so for my third and and final uh, music excerpt, I want to play something, and I I may get a little choked up about this. Um, this This is somebody who's gone. This is a good friend of mine who you met, Roger a man named Andrew Lazaro, who came from San Juan, Puerto Rico. He uh, is a percussionist, uh, absolutely phenomenal, both orchestral percussionist and also hand drummer, timbales, bongos, congas, and a wonderful, sweet, kind man. He was my age or a little younger. And uh, he came from Puerto Rico to do a, a master's degree in percussion at Indiana. Um, it was, I think it was, it was cold and rainy for, and Andrew was used to warm and rainy in Puerto Rico, but it was cold and rainy. He came with his wife and he had a couple of kids while, while they were in Bloomington, he was in grad school. But Andrew is the first person who ever pulled me into playing Afro-Cuban music, playing salsa. He had, as often happens in universities, he was somebody who had an interest. He wanted to do something, you know, he wanted to play Afro-Cuban music, play salsa, but also Afro-Cuban uh, folklorical music. And he didn't have a lot of people from the islands there. He had mostly folks who looked like me, you know, young or not so young white folks. But Andrew decided, this gets to back to your question, Roger. Andrew decided that that was enough of a human resource so that he could do something. He could make something happen 
for a kind of music that he wanted to play, but also a kind of music that he believed in. And so he started writing salsa and Afro-Cuban charts for an ensemble of players. And then he kind of went around and recruited people or people auditioned for him. And I could play a little bit. I could play a lot of different pluck string instruments. And so um, he said, well, if you want to play tres, which is the, the small plectrum, wire-strung, double-strung guitar-type instrument, you know, we, we could have you play tres. And I'd never played tres, but I, I thought, I, I want to play this music with this guy. And so he told me how to take a three-quarter size student guitar and recut the nut and the bridge so the strings were paired. And then he sent me to a local guitar repair guy in town and said, okay, here's how you take the element out of a clock radio and solder, solder two wires to it and stick it inside and it turns it into a pickup. And I did that. I thought this will never work or it'll explode. And I did it and I plugged this thing in and I plugged it into an amp and it sounded exactly the sound, not the playing, but the sound was exactly like the Afro-Cuban records. And I'm like, okay. And I, I spent time on the bandstand, me and a bunch of other white boys with Andrew Lazaro, with Andrew leading the band and not just leading the band from the congas or from the drum set, but also teaching us what the music was supposed to accomplish in terms of people dancing, in terms of people operating together in this way that had all to do with the clave and understanding what the clave was, but also teaching us a way of being a person in music. And as I say, I get a little choked up because we lost Andrew Young. You had a chance to meet him, mm -hmm. Roger, when we went to Puerto Rico to San Juan, and he was as wonderful as I remembered him. And uh, and uh, later I had a band with him and some other friends, and I was always feeling like, oh my God, they're letting me lead this, and I can't believe it. But this is uh, in, in memory, in, in, mem in, in memory of our mutual friend, this is Andrew Lazaro. That's the great Afro-Cuban percussionist and my good friend, Andrew Lazaro. That's from a small uh, teaching demo that he did on timbales for a percussion company. Um, I could have found footage of Andrew leading a salsa band. There's wonderful stuff on YouTube. We'll put it in the show notes. But I kind of just wanted to hear Andrew doing what Andrew did just all by himself on the timbales because I watched him play and I thought, I remember that guy. I remember how wonderful that was. So that's my that's my story, Roger. That's how I came to find myself in Southern Indiana, and it was actually from Southern Indiana that uh, subsequently I drove to Western Missouri, and then much later, um, my wife and I flew to Taos, New Mexico, to meet up with you. Yeah, so that's my place, and I'm going to talk about uh, after forty years of living in and around Kansas City, Missouri, Independence, Missouri. We talked about Missouri on Missouri on a previous uh, a podcast. I moved in uh, December of 1999 to Taos, New Mexico, which had kind of been a dream of mine for about mm, seven or eight years. Uh, and I was there for 10 years before I relocated to uh, Texas Tech University. Um, Taos is an interesting place. 
um, the Taos Pueblo is one of two places, uh, both that are both in the American Southwest that kind of vie <laughs> for being the oldest continually inhabited spots in North America. Taos Pueblo, the other is Acoma Pueblo, kind of on the west, west central New Mexico. And so I thought, um, since we're going to talk about New Mexico, it would be best to start with the native presence there. Um, and we're going to start with two uh, recordings, just a snippet of one and and then a little bit more of another. And I'll, I'll, I'm going to set these up because you need to know what you're hearing because um, it's this music and this. Well, um, the second is powwow singing. And so it's all about the Pueblo. The first is actually recorded on the Pueblo. They do a procession of uh, the Virgin Mary uh, on Christmas Eve. They carry the Virgin Mary into the church. And it's an amazing experience. They invite the public to come. And so you'll get several hundred people dressed warm. Uh, it's you know 7,200 feet. Um, it's, it's pretty cold in December. Everybody dressed warm. But the other thing that they do on the Pueblo is that they make these towers of firewood that's very carefully cut and selected. If you can imagine... I don't know if you've ever played pickup sticks and you take a pair of sticks and then you lay another pair across them at 90 degrees and then another and another and another and you make a tower. Um, that's what they do. But these, they're kind of like poles. They're maybe like four feet long and maybe six inches in diameter. And so they build a tower probably about, I think some of them are as high as like 16 feet. And then they 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 light them on fire. And so you have these towers of fire throughout the plaza of the Pueblo. And so it's making the place warm. Um, and, you know, you, you get close to it if you are comfortable doing that. Uh, and the further you get away from it, the, uh, the colder you are. Um, people kind of come out of the woodwork to attend this. And there's no set schedule. They say dark. So when it gets dark, they light the fires. Uh, people show up early because they want to be kind of in the middle of it. And then sometime after dark, after the these towers have been burning for a while, the procession starts. Now, what you're going to hear in this little clip, it's about 40 seconds of the procession. You're going to hear a crowd. You're going to hear some wind. Yeah, you're going to hear the church bell tolling. And then you're going to hear, don't be alarmed, you're going to hear gunshots. Because part of what they do, the the hunters are some of the people who are helping carry the Virgin Mary. And they take their rifle, their hunting rifles with them, and they shoot into the air as a way of, of uh, celebrating um, the impending birth. Um, and so we'll, we'll, ha we'll have about 40 seconds of that. I, I definitely needed to set the scene so you can see it in your mind's eye as you, as you listen to it. And then uh, a minute or so uh, of uh, powwow singing from the summer. From you know six months later, um, a summer powwow at Taos Pueblo.
So two short excerpts recorded on site at Taos Pueblo. Uh, the first part of that, as Roger told us, is from the Christmas celebration of the Virgin. And then that segued into the uh, a summer fiesta. And uh, I have to say, I've, I've been visiting Taos now, th- partly through your good agency and through people that I, I, to whom I was introduced by you for a lot of time now. And uh, I've never been, it's again, not to my credit, I've never been to the Pueblo. I've never been inside the Pueblo because there are only certain times that that's permissible and uh-huh. and uh, one wants to be respectful of that. I know that for many Tausenos of whatever their cultural background, there are moments when being at the Pueblo is extremely um, uh, powerful experience. Um, and other times when it's simply not permitted, you know, if you're not Pueblo, you're, you're not permitted. And I've never done that yet, and I hope to someday. Well, Taos is a UNESCO World uh, Spiritual Site. Um, and it is, you know, if you've ever been to really <laughs> old villages in Europe or in uh, uh, the Orient that have been um, occupied um, and Say farmed or developed for a, more a thousand years or more, you know the kind of feeling you get by being in a place that has been a human place for so long. And just to put it in perspective, a lot of our listeners will have be familiar with the name Coronado, who was the um, Spanish leader of an entrada uh, from Mexico City in 1539 and 1540 uh, to what into what is now. Arizona, New Mexico, uh, Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas, uh, returning in, in 1542. Coronado himself didn't go to Taos, but he sent a detachment of men to go because he heard about it. And, and when those Spaniards rode into the Taos Plaza in 1540, Taos Plaza was 500 years old, at least, at least. And that kind of a time span for us as Americans is mind-boggling. Um, you know, we're used to having to go to Europe or to India or um, other other parts of the world to access places with those kinds of time spans. But there are places near us uh, that that have that kind of time span. Yeah. When you tell me, when, when you've told me this story and I've heard various permutations in this story, completely non-linearly. It always reminds me of when I'm f- flying into Ireland, into Shannon, 
and you first get a glimpse, usually it's when the sun's first coming up, you get a glimpse of the west coast of, of Clare and Limerick. And I look down and as you start to come into, to come into Shannon Airport, you see the literally thousands of miles of stone walls that 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 are definitive of the west of Ireland. And I think every time I, it happens, I've been doing it for years, I think that's an old, old place because someone, just like the adobes on the Taos Pueblo, somebody picked up every one of those building blocks and put it in a place intent with intention a very long time ago. Yeah. One aspect about Taos that I've, um, during the time that I was living there, I was also touring as a professional musician and people knew me from, you know, having come from Missouri and they'd say, well, what's, what's New Mexico like? What's Taos like? And, and I always described it to them kind of in terms of um, how different it is from the rest of the United States. And I said, it's one of the places, not only can you access this kind of long-term, long-time span um, human uh, inhabitant uh, place, but it's also a place that's very different because there are three very distinct cultures there that live side by side, shoulder to shoulder, and pretty much get along. Um, there's a phrase in Spanish that's usually applied to um, the time period in the uh, European Middle Ages when Muslims, Christians, and Jews lived in peace in uh, Sephirod, what the, what they called Sephirod in the, in uh, in Arabic in Spain, um, and the the phrase is the tres culturas. Another, another term they have for it is the convivencia, which means it, when people got along, basically, just <laughs> not literally, but that's how it's used. Yeah. So there's something like that in Taos, and so when you have now, I come from one of what was historically one of the most segregated cities in the United States. A lot of people don't know that. Uh, Kansas City was uh, well into the 1980s, was one of the most segregated places in the United States. And there's an energy there uh, when you have two groups like that who have um, uh, in some ways antipathy for one another one uh one group which has been forced into a subaltern relationship with the other um and it's long standing historical it's not something that people can rectify very quickly and growing up in the midst of that i mean it takes years you know i i didn't leave until i was 40 it took me years living in taos to realize the parts of me that had you know were affected by that. And the thing, one of the things that helped me do it was that here I was living in another culture where I was a minority. And there are two other cultures that had been there way longer than Los Anglos, as they called us. Um, they used the term Anglo, which just means white. And uh, you, you really have to kind of recalibrate the way you think about the community in which you're living. And it was a wonderful learning experience. Um, and so that was part of my answer. I said, well, you've, you know, if, if a, fr a friend who was like me, white was asking what it was like to live in Taos, I'd say, well, have you ever lived in a place where you were a minority? Usually the answer is no. And I said, it's a good thing. It's a good thing to experience. And, uh, given that there's, there's three distinct cultures here, um, 
it's the, the dynamic is really, really different. There's a different energy. I don't know how to describe it. There's a, there's a, a dark side to it as well. Um, because, uh, you know, much of the history is, is problematic, is violent, is racist. Um, but there's something emerging out of that in our time, which I think is really vibrant and, uh, and I think it's really solid. Um, and I think it's, um, I don't, I've never met any sociologists who went there to study that, but I would think that they probably have. And I think there's a lot, a lot to be learned there from that. Yeah. There's a, there's a, a thing about, um, majority and minority experience, which, I mean, we talked about this before we ever started this podcast, you know, oh, this is going to be a podcast of two white guys talking and just let's, you know, and just for the sake of the listeners, I kind of want to own that. I kind of want to acknowledge just the way we acknowledge the indigenous holders of the land when we're talking about specific places, or we acknowledge, Roger's just been acknowledging who are the incomers versus who, you know, who are the settlers versus who are the indigenous. And it's it's not dissimilar to what some of us in the university are being quite rightly asked to um, address, to continue to address, which is, you know, at this particular moment in the world, a lot of us are spending a lot of time looking at each other on screens. And sometimes I find myself looking at the screen and thinking, yeah, just because of who's here, I should just be quiet. I should just let other, I should center, as they quite, as, as is quite rightly said, I, we should center other voices, mm-hmm. the voices that have been silenced. And it is an amazing experience. Uh, it's a good educational experience to live and work and interact with other humans in a space where, for once, you're the minority. Mm-hmm. One other thing I want to share about Taos is that and it's true of the American Southwest in general. Um, the native communities that are intact today are on the land that they historically uh, have been on. They were never displaced. Um, there are other communities that were displaced. Um, uh, the the infamous example of Kit Carson and the Navajos. Um, but if you think about uh, – Eastern Eastern communities, uh, and also the the Plains communities who were uh, mobile. Um, I, the majority of them were displaced from their land. Some of them have returned to it, um, particularly in the part of the world where you're from. Um, there, are, you know, all these uh, um, cases of people returning uh, these communities returning to their land. And by the way. Taos Pueblo played a part in that because one of the legal precedents that has been used by, uh, I think, every Native community in the last 50 years um, who has sought to return to their ancestral lands, um, they've cited um, the legal precedent when the uh, United States Department of Agriculture under Earl Butts during the Nixon administration returned Blue Lake, which is on Taos Mountain to the Taos Pueblo. Um, it was part of um, the USDA because of the Forest Service. And fortunately, it hadn't been spoiled. And they 
Taos Pueblo had sought to have it returned for the better part of a century. And finally it was. And that created a precedent that other Native communities have been able to use. So that's a, another Taos story right there. Yeah, so um, let's go to our next track, which I want to share with you. This is um, basically Hispanic music uh, from Taos. There is a long-standing tradition of uh, songs and dance music uh, associated with uh, Spanish settlers and other settlers. Um, this is a trio called the Trio de Taos, which is made up of two uh, Taos natives and a very interesting um, uh, woman from the East Coast whom I was lucky enough to know before she passed away a few years, Jenny Vincent, who had been, among other things, Paul Robeson's piano accompanist. Um, she was married that's to- amazing. Uh, That's yeah. amazing. I mean, she the, was, the, the, the cycles of the, 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 the journey of some of these remarkable people. Yeah. Jenny was married to, um, early on in her life, she was married to a college professor who was teaching in Germany. Teaching in Germany in the 1930s. And he was Jewish. And as they saw the Third Reich accruing and gaining power, they left and came to the United States. And because they had, uh, they were members of the Communist Party, later uh, she and her husband were persecuted uh, in the 1950s for that affiliation. Um, Jenny ended up uh, playing music, be, being pretty much a professional musician, doing a lot of work in schools. But she she went around and she collected folk songs from all over New Mexico, and she met the uh, tradition bearers, the, the ones that that she could find, many of them, and two of them were playing with her here. Um, this is a traditional. It's called a marcha, a march. But it's actually, when you hear it, you'll, it may remind you of a polka. What it is, it's a dance that is played traditionally at Taos weddings, Taos Hispanic weddings, to celebrate the nuptials. Um, and it's called uh, La Marcha de los Novios. That was Trio de Taos, recorded in 1977. That was Jenny Vincent on the accordion and vocals, Nat Flores on guitar, and Hattie Trujillo on the mandolin. Cool. So that's that's the second of the Tres Culturas of Taos, New Mexico. Yes. The Spanish tradition. Yeah, and I and I put them in order, <laughs> in chronological order. Um 
we spoke a little bit about uh, about Jenny, and you know, we could do a whole podcast on her her story, her career. Um, uh, fascinating, fascinating person. Um, there is something of just to say a couple of comments about this music, uh, Northern New Mexico traditional music. There's been uh, something of kind of a small renaissance in the last few years of younger people picking up this music. At one point, I, I, when I still lived there, um, I left there in 2009, there was kind of a, uh, a mariachi uh, thing building at the Taos High School and lots of excitement about that music. It's wonderful music. But I was concerned. I didn't know of any young people who were playing the old Nuevo Mexicano music. And uh, since then, uh, there have been a few who have done that. And, uh, um, and it's nice to see. Yeah. Okay, so we're getting down to near the end of our time this week on the pod. Do you have one more piece of music you might share with us that you consider to be kind of emblematic of Taos and Northern New Mexico? Yes. Uh, if only for its, its diversity, it's very different from the first two pieces I chose, which are rooted in the place and in time and in culture and tradition. Um, there's been a lot of change in the population in New Mexico in the last 40, 50 years. Uh, a lot of uh, people from other parts of the country have moved in. Um, there's interest in lots uh, of different kinds of music. I, I didn't even touch on. There's a huge two-stepping country music scene there, which has a lot to do with people vacationing and also moving uh, into New Mexico from Texas, from neighboring Texas. But uh, there's also uh, an appreciation for um, flamenco. There's a, a an international flamenco festival in Albuquerque, and a and a dance theater. Maria Benitez in Santa Fe has her uh, dance theater with some of the greatest flamenco artists in the world who live in Santa Fe. But there's also, um, I wouldn't say there's a scene, but there's a an appreciation for Balkan and Middle Eastern music. Unfortunately, this wasn't recorded in New Mexico. It was recorded at a uh, a Balkan and Middle Eastern music camp uh, out of state. But two of the people who were performing on it, the percussionist, uh, the brilliant percussionist, Polly Tapia Ferber, and the brilliant bass player, Paul Brown, both live in Santa Fe and have played for years and have taught. Uh, Chris, you, you, you know both of them from Zookfest. They were part of Zookfest. They play uh, Turkish and Balkan music and some Middle Eastern music at a very high level and have been teaching there for um, several decades. And so this is a performance of, um, a song in Turkish by the great, uh, sung by the great singer Brenna McCrimmon, who was from Canada, uh, but singing in Turkish. Um, and it's a song, um, the title has to do with, uh, I just had a sigh. It's about feelings. And, and if you, if you go to the to the playlist and grab the title, which I'm not going to attempt to uh, pronounce in Turkish, and you search on it, you can easily find the lyrics in a translation. It's a beautiful song, but uh, this there is a New Mexico connection here through Polly Ferber and Paul Brown.
So uh, a beautiful performance of a Turkish song featuring friends of Rogers and of the podcast, Paul Brown and Polly Tapia Ferber. Roger asked me when we were listening if I wanted to have a go at pronouncing the Turkish of the title. And, and I said, I think we'll send folks to the playlist. <laughs> because although I did study Turkish in a, in a very odd moment in my life, it's many years since I've actually had an accent, if I ever did. So we've been talking this this week on the pod, we've been talking about places and uh, places to which people go, from which people come and to which people go and the meetings that happen there. And I'm trying to sort of get my head around takeaway points, you know, themes that are consistent here across the experiences that we've been talking about, but maybe uh, among listeners, I'm sure the people who've relocated from one place to another and tried to figure out what is this place and how do I you know, how do I find myself at home here? And I think one of the things that such experiences have taught me or have, yeah, I would say have taught me, have reminded me of is that places have a feel. They have a topography and a meteorology and flora and fauna and climate. And, uh, and that to the extent that we understand those landscapes, those kinds of landscapes of, of, topography and geology, but also plants and animals, but also climate, and also just the layers of history of people living in that on that landscape. To the extent that we learn about those, especially if we're coming from outside, to the extent that we learn about those and begin to immerse ourselves in those layers of landscape, like in the the uh, Prairie Earth book that we spoke about mm -hmm. a couple of episodes ago, you know, the deep, deep geography, the deep topography of the place. The more that we find that, I think, you know, maybe the more it helped, has helped me anyway, kind of feel at home. Mm -hmm. I certainly identify with that. And it's interesting to me, I haven't lived that many places. I've, I've had two big moves in my life. Um, and both of the places I've moved to, I've lived to, lived in for a decade or slightly more. And it's interesting how when you're new to a place, um, how the place will kind of teach you how to be in it um, and will kind of orient you to it. Yeah, that will orient you to the place, that the place will tell you where you are if you stay open and learn things and, yeah. listen, to what it, and listen to what it's saying. Well, to, to pick up on a term we've used in the past, but it, it, we've applied it in different ways, the place will kind of indigenize you if you let it if you let it. Voices from the Vernacular Music Center is hosted by Roger Landis and Chris Smith and produced with funding from the TTU Office of the Vice President for Research and Innovation. Our post-production engineer is Gavin Stocker and our VVMC Administrative Coordinator is Heather Belts. Check out her Possibly Haunted podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'd like to express special thanks to our podcast consultant, Seedpod Productions, at seedpodmedia.com. We'll see you next time. <laughs>